Good morning, everybody. This is, thank you. That was a nice, rousing good morning back. <laughs> this is the last Sunday of a six-week series where we have tried to talk about significant cultural issues. The series has been entitled, In the World But Not of It. And we believe that the Gospel of Mark and the letters to the church at Corinth have provided an excellent framework for us to examine and confront some of these topics. By the way, we'll provide an explanation for the wearing of these robes a little bit later in the message. You're just going to have to hang in there with us till we get to that spot. So you know that one of the things that I often do, or any of us um, will do in presenting a message, is to talk about the context of the Scripture writers and the characters of that um, Scripture passage. Well, we also need to do the same thing about the history of the cultural context in which we find ourselves, since we're talking about issues that kind of rise out of our culture. Um, it's important to understand a little bit of the history of that culture. This helps us to know how to move forward in our faith as we try and better reflect Christ in all of the situations that we find ourselves. So the issues about which we hope Scripture will guide us this morning are in regard to race and gender. So it seems really appropriate, and I would probably add important to confess that the history of our nation, and thus our culture, has both some beautiful pieces, but as well as some dark spots to it. It includes gross injustices toward Native Americans. It includes institutionalized systems of slavery, of black people, followed by mass incarceration most likely to perpetuate industries dependent upon their labor. It includes the struggle of all women to obtain voting rights, property rights, and fair pay. So I attended a conference in April, and that was part of our church's commitment to allow us to have professional development. So in April, I went to New York for a conference entitled Revolutionary Love. And the conference focused on the central problem of racism and other uh, resulting oppression, um, and, and it really asked one central question all throughout the conference, and it's a large question. The question was, how can communities of faith educate about and then empower our members to end racism and oppression? It's a massive question, and I left, as you could imagine, with my head and my heart spinning. I was particularly challenged in one session that I attended by a quote. Uh, that was shared, and the quote comes from Georgia Erasmus, who is an Aboriginal leader in Canada, and the quote goes like this, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. And through that session, I was informed and recalled that we have a disjointed common memory about the origins of our nation. For good reason, we cherish our republic, and we uphold this democratic style of government. And I can understand why we elevate documents that establish and help define and explain democracy and the freedoms we enjoy. And the common memory that I've participated in for so long, the common memory that I was taught, 
is that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution do just that. They declare my and your freedom, our independence. We quote often, we could quote them together jointly, the beautiful phrases that are all throughout these documents, things like created equal, uh, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, toward a more perfect union, promoting the general welfare. But these documents and history might be viewed through a different lens by Native people who in these same documents are referred to as merciless Indian savages or seen differently by women because in these documents are only references to men or remembered differently by those who originate from Africa because these documents allowed and enabled slavery. The church is also a part of this history. The religious freedom that immigrants came to this place with uh, is a Protestant version. And, of course, their faith was bound up in their politics despite the fact that they sought to protect this division between the separation of church and state. We have to name these beginnings. We have to name this history because when we don't, we aren't telling the truth. We aren't being honest about what we've come from or who we are. And we are committed to telling the truth. We want to be honest because we want to work with you and with our other Christian brothers and sisters to make this place, this city, a more just city. This nation, a more just nation, and this creation, this globe, a more just globe. It is in that that we create a common history, real and honest, based in the truth. In our local congregation, in our denomination, we have participated in that for about 110 years. And we have been affected. We've been affected by this nation's successes. We've been guided by their ever-changing laws. We've been divided by the issues uh, that are controversial. We've also been seduced by this nation's material resources and indoctrinated into their benchmarks of success. And we have been molded by the public debate. At the same time, our guiding principles as a local congregation and as a denomination has been to be molded by Scripture, to be guided by prayer, and that ultimately we are motivated by love. This feels incredibly difficult when our cultural influencers are so strong. The ways we go about seeing the world are shaped by what has been passed down to us. And if we're honest, we have been passed down some very large blind spots. We have been passed down many privileges and prejudices. And here's the thing. If we aren't honest with those things, if we don't name them, then we are being ignorant. And this ignorance is not going to prepare us for two things. One, it's going to keep us unprepared for the, the clearly 
the big obstacles in our way, even now. And at the same time, if we continue in ignorance, we are not preparing ourselves for the ways and the opportunities that God has given us to step into those places, into those conversations. So Jesus stepped into cultural systems, and on first glance, it feels as if the cultural setting of Jesus' time is very, very different than our own. But I would contend to you, with you this morning, that when you look beneath the surface just a little bit, I think we discover that those differences are really simply on the surface. There are incredible similarities in dynamics of power, uh, economic classes, societal expectations, familial privilege, governmental systems. They have striking similarities to our own. So I'd like to invite you into the passages that we have been looking at for several weeks now in Mark. And I'd like to look specifically at a rather lengthy passage that seems to be part of all one large section, a section that begins in chapter 4 and goes through section 8. It's kind of bookmarked by phrasing that is strikingly similar. In chapter 4, we come to the end of the parable of the sower with the seed. And at the end, Jesus talks about the people having eyes that do not perceive, and they hear, but they do not understand. Similarly, at the end of this section in chapter 8, Jesus confronts the disciples, wondering if they have ears that really aren't understanding, eyes that really aren't perceiving. And so, it, it appears that Jesus is becoming frustrated or at least wondering if this radical new understanding of community that he's trying to communicate, a radical way of living, that the disciples are not understanding what he's trying to do, what he's saying, or even what he is attempting to model. He, he becomes convinced that they are still so wrapped up in their cultural settings that they may actually be blind to this as well. And I have to confess, the same is probably true of me as well. I become so indoctrinated into accepted ways of living that I become defensive when confronted with the possibility that how I live might be counter to the principles of the kingdom of God. So in this section... Jesus again and again violates or challenges the barriers and the protocols that protect those in power, and he also challenges the laws that treat people with indignity and shame. The chapter after that, Jesus comes upon uh, a man who is possessed by an unclean spirit. He, this man is dwelling in a graveyard amongst the dead, and strangely enough with a herd of pigs. And in Jewish culture, dwelling and interacting with the dead made you unclean. And living with, participating in the economy of swine, pigs, made you unclean. Technically, Brad Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong, this makes you super unclean, right? Super unclean. Confirmed. Confirmed. He is, the, is on the outside of culture. He is on the outside, marginalized, and yet... You see Jesus come to this man unafraid, 
saying to him, you are worth something. You aren't the worst thing you have done. You aren't all of these marginalized categories. And he heals him. And he has him go on his way. Shortly after that, we have the story of Jesus encountering the woman who is unclean. She has an ailment where she cannot stop bleeding. She gets to him through the crowd and touches his coat, his cloak. She is someone who's been robbed of uh, her possessions, robbed of her dignity by a health care system that is not looking out for her. Jesus, in seeking her out, crosses significant gender boundaries, class barriers, and significant religious protocol as well to declare her healed and to free her from her suffering. Jesus goes on to heal and raise from the dead a little girl, once again transcending these boundaries. We also see Jesus consistently debating with religious authorities what is unclean and what is clean. And over and over again, he consistently lands on the side of radical inclusion. And then there's this passage that we read from Mark. It's the crescendo of these narratives. And it's this radical story where Jesus is in a region of Israel that is controlled by uh, the Romans. It's a Greek city, a Greek region, not Jewish. And he, 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 uh, a, a Syrophoenician woman actually comes to him finds out where he is. She begs Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus responds in the most fascinating way. He responds by exposing the insidious divisions among us, the protectionism of those in power and in privilege that have entitled to them power and authority and control. Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. The phrase sounds demeaning to the woman and the race in which she's a part. The statement feels repugnant and familiar, and that is because it is repugnant because it is so familiar, right? The term appears as an ethnic slur. It reveals that the accepted cultural norms can drive division, belittlement, condescension, and shame. And yet the woman responds. So fascinating. Her response reveals that these cultural norms aren't the case. They're not what, what is true. She, be, she debates Jesus and contends that even the dogs, they are able to eat the crumbs. They are able to be at the table. And then Jesus heals her daughter. So for me, one of the very powerful pieces of this story is that it comes to us from a culture that thinks very deeply about honor and shame, an honor-shame culture. See, this moment, Jesus is in a place of great honor, He's a teacher. He's a healer. He's a prophet. He's a leader. He's male. And the woman in a place of shame. She has a demon-possessed daughter. She's non-Jewish. She's female. Here's what's fascinating about this to me. Jesus, who 
never loses a debate. Ever loses a debate. He allows this woman to have the last word in the argument. In essence, Jesus takes on all the shame of the moment. A rabbi losing an argument to a non-Jewish Greek female so that she might be fully honored. Unbelievable. But I also don't want you to miss something else. To me, it's the power of the table imagery here. Jesus is trying to teach us who is invited to the table. As Paul says, in the kingdom of God, there is neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, but we are all in Christ. It's Galatians 3, verses 27 to 28, but you can find it other places in Scripture as well. This passage takes really a pretty simple perspective on gender and race. On the surface, it really seems like the differences between gender and race are being blurred to the point where there is virtually no distinction, but that's really not the case. Those differences don't just magically disappear. What really spoken of here is spiritual understanding of truth. In baptism, symbolic of our new life in Christ, we take on Christ as if we are putting on a piece of clothing. We imitate Christ, and in so doing, what is washed away in the waters of baptism is an ethic of dominance. We participate in the love and grace of Christ equally, all of us, and therefore we relate to one another as equals. This passage doesn't mean that differences just disappear, rather that we come on equal ground so that there is no dominant race. There is no dominant gender. There is no dominant economic status. This notion of equality reframes the way we relate to one another, the way we speak to one another, needs to reframe the way in which we love one another. The disciples, like us, maybe I should just confess, like me, are slow to catch on. In the middle of chapter 8, the disciples are worried that somehow they have been reprimanded for not having brought extra loaves of bread. They only had one loaf of bread in the boat as they went to the other side of the sea. Jesus seems perplexed by their lack of understanding, and so he walks them through what they've experienced that we have seen take place in the last several chapters. And he references very specifically the two feedings of large groups of people that have taken place. The first feeding took place in a distinctly Jewish setting. There were five loaves, 5,000 people, and 12 basketfuls were gathered back. He doesn't say this to the disciples, but certainly they picked up on it. We need to be told that the word he used for basket is a Hebrew word, or at least it's a word that has Hebrew roots. All of the symbolism and imagery here is about Israel, the children of Israel, the 12 tribes, and that that feeding was an invitation to the table, a, a reconciliation, if you will. Then he goes on to say, now what do you remember about the other feeding? 
4,000 people, there were seven loaves and seven basketfuls that were picked up. And the word for basket is a word that comes from Greek roots. And it took place in the area of the Decapolis, a center of Roman and Greek culture. These are people who are not like them, the others. And they were invited to the table as well. They are part of the kingdom of heaven. As the Syrophoenician woman said, even we get to eat crumbs at the table. And Jesus concludes, however, do you still not understand? They still have eyes that are not perceiving and ears that are not understanding. Interestingly enough, the very next miracle in Scripture is the healing of the blind man. Now, the discrimination and the othering that we do to people that we don't like or accept or understand is in the oldest texts of humanity, including the Bible we read. Humans, we need to make sense of our world. And we do so by creating categories. We make groups that people can kind of neatly fit into to organize ourselves. This tendency is generally really helpful, and it comes really naturally to us. But it goes terribly awry when, in separating people, we start judging and assigning general um, attributes or stereotypes to groups. And it's particularly problematic when it leads to us assigning certain groups power, access, and privilege. So a winning category for example, a winning grouping is whiteness. And when we look around this morning, we need to tell the truth that, for the most part, we are a winning group in this room. Another winning category is male. Look around again, about a little under half of us are winning. And then when you put these two together, the combination of white and male, that is this like power double up that again, about half of the people in this room enjoy. And it has been this way for so, so long. This is nothing new. And that's in part because our color and our gender, these are the things we wear on the outside. These are the things that are visible. They're easily picked up upon. They're the identifying markers that you could gather about someone simply by looking at them. And we know that these aren't the only two markers of privilege, right? That there are so many other ways in which you can move up or down sort of this hierarchy of power and privilege. For example, one's command of English is one of those kinds of things. Your country of origin, your socioeconomic status, physical or mental ability or sexuality, these are all things that gain us a certain access or lack of access to privilege. But those things really take getting to know someone or at least having a conversation to figure that out. The most obvious parts about us are what becomes so systematically easy to manipulate and then therefore are so, is so profoundly damaging. Our skin and our body parts literally determine how we get to move through the world. The story in the creation narrative in Genesis is quite clear. One of the core theological commitments that we have in those narratives is that humanity is created in the image of God. In each of us, individually and collectively, we are the image of God. And that this principle 
is affirmed throughout Scripture. We are created, all of us, in the image of God. The thing is, we don't treat each other that way. Demeaning racial and sexist language dehumanizes the other person and does not honor the image of God within them or within you. It takes away a person's humanity and treats him or her like an object. This leads to a lack of compassion, a lack of grace, and enables individuals and communities and systems to easily disregard those who do not share the same skin color, gender, and cultural practices. Anytime another person is treated as an object for profit, anytime a person is undervalued, injured, abused, or forced to suffer indignities, it is an affront, an attack on that person's image of God nature within them. Individually and collectively, we are called to honor the image of God in ourselves and in others. As mentioned previously, we don't do that when we call each other names. When we belittle one another or mock some distinguishing characteristic of each other, we are affronting the image of God. And I would contend that that image of God stamped in every individual is what Jesus was referencing when he said with such passion, when you have done it unto one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. So I have to say, much like the disciples, we find it difficult to be reflective enough to see how entrenched we are in the culture in which we live the culture that raised us, the culture that trained us, a culture that holds tenaciously to the structures it has built. In our culture, a great deal of power has been held by older white males. And we, not too old, but yes, <laughs> and we, have a very spotty record of using that power, not using that power for the common good. We are all naturally drawn toward power, and when we have power, we are prone to use it in the ways that we saw it used. It is typically used for the purpose of simply holding on to the power that we have acquired and often suppressing those who try and take away that power. Much like the original sin of Adam and Eve, we act as if we are God, and that we know best. We seek to control, we seek to impose our will, and when someone or something gets in the way of our thoughts, our actions, or our beliefs, we tend to become defensive and we fight back. It is a form of idolatry to think that everyone should act like me and should think like me. In fact, there are times that because I am white and because I am male, subconsciously, I believe that it is my God-given right to say my opinion and have it be heard, when in fact, such a belief is the epitome of living into a power and a privilege that has done so much damage over history. I am constantly reminded of the book of James, where the author tells his readers 
to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So much of the tension of these issues comes from our posture. When I am closed off, defensive, thinking I know it all, I physically and intellectually can't be generous toward the other person, toward the person I'm listening to. I can't hear the stories and experiences of those women and minorities who have been marginalized. The first step to engaging the conversation well is to say, I don't know it, and I don't know everything. I need to listen well to the stories I do not know and have not experienced. We compound the problem within the church when we limit our thinking about God to that which is often depicted in art, in literature, and song. An image that very often portrays God as an older, light-skinned male with a long, full gray beard. God is not limited by our categories. Our categories of race or gender or age or beard length. And there is profound scriptural foundation for encouraging us to plumb the rich imagery that represents the breadth and depth of God's character. I need to state the obvious, and that is that God is neither male nor female. We were created in God's image. God was not created in our image. We really all benefit when we see women's selves reflected in God. We owe it to our little girls and our little boys and our teens, as well as all of the adults, to represent to them how we speak about God in these beautiful, wonderful ways. We owe it to our discipleship to see what is often a paradoxical, mysterious, miraculous way in which God loves and God encompasses all, both genders, all ethnic groups, all ages. He goes far beyond those limited categories and bursts through all of the boxes we try and put God into to try and show us how much God loves. So now, we come to these black robes. This series was actually born out of some issues that were brought to my attention several months ago. And out of those issues, kind of expanded to the series that we've been trying to present to you these six weeks. In that very significant conversation, I was told about several women in our congregation who were uncomfortable with certain comments made about them by people within our congregation. The comments came from both men and women. The ones from women typically centered around attire or clothing. And the comments from men typically centered on body and beauty. These left these particular women feeling very uncomfortable, treated more like an object than like a person. And we were concerned that as soon as we talked about comments concerning bodies and clothing, 
that you might become so preoccupied with our clothing this morning that you would stop listening to what we were trying to say. And these black robes actually in their beginnings were an attempt to take away things that would be noticeable about class structure and other identifying characteristics. So this morning, right now, I would like to uh, let you hear just a portion of the story that was brought to my attention concerning some of the issues in our community of faith. So recently, I had a group of young adults over to my home. Regularly, I have them over once a month to watch a documentary and then discuss it. And the one we were watching this particular time was entitled Misrepresentation. I hadn't watched it previously. This was my first time to watch it. And it poignantly goes into how women are portrayed in media, in art, in the culture at large. It's a sad and hard thing to watch. It expresses well the impossible standards of beauty, attitude, purity, motherhood that women consistently internalize and then strive to live up to or strive to push against. The part that hit me the hardest, the part that made me sit up in my chair and instantly start crying, was the exploration of women in politics. Basically, it showed how women who are in politics try so hard to do a job that is nearly exclusively done by men. How these women are not taken seriously, they are not welcomed, they're not treated equally, and they have to work harder for less pay and get more degrees just to be in the room. And then, most disheartening and tragic of all to me was how the documentary, documentary carefully explained that in order to deal with the discomfort that we have of women inhabiting roles that typically men take up, well, what we do is we end up relegating women to one of two categories. Either that woman is the frigid witch or she is a sex object. And we do this because it keeps women down. When we see women this way in leadership, obviously they are unapproachable, the frigid version over here, or all too approachable, if you know what I mean, over here. And I was grateful that night for a cover of a dark room in my home watching this documentary so I could try to compose myself and actually lead a discussion afterward. Because something became crystal clear to me that night. That what the documentary was portraying is also my reality. Now, before I expose something that is painful and is awkward to share in public, I do want to affirm that I believe, and I say this all the time, that I have landed the best gig in the Church of the Nazarene. <laughs> I love, I adore being a part of this congregation. I could not ask for a kinder, more empowering boss, for more skilled colleagues, or for a church full of people who are so genuinely committed to their faith and to living that out in real, concrete ways, following in the ways of Christ. I never imagined myself as a pastor when I was little, uh, but I know for sure that my winding path has led me to work and worship here. But I also have to tell the parts of my story that aren't so beautiful and warm. A few months ago, I finally shared with Dee that every single week, Something is said to me that references my body, the fit of my clothing, or my looks. I'm not referring to compliments about my outfit. That's okay. You can give me compliments about my outfit. 
or noticing a haircut or asking why I don't dye my hair. That happens all the time. I'm fine with that. Or ask me where I got my earrings. I'll happily share you those details. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is regular, repeated comments from multiple people that go beyond the realm of appreciating style or hair. This is a totally new phenomenon for me. I have never, ever before even received one sexually harassing comment in my previous places of work, and I do not receive comments like this out and about as I move throughout the world. For the first two years, I was utterly astounded, first two years of working here, astounded that this was happening to me at work, but especially at church, of all places. But I bore that for two years silently, I didn't tell one person that this was happening. For one, I don't have a spouse that would be easy to share that with, who would hold that with me. I didn't share it with my sister or my parents because they're part of this church. And I didn't want to color the way that they would see my beloved congregation just because of the comments of comparatively a small percentage of people. And I didn't share it with Dee because honestly that is an awkward and hard thing to share. Now you know that I'm an outspoken advocate of women's rights. But I have consistently been the victim of sexual harassment here, and I have said nothing. Now, those first two years, the reason that I said nothing is because I struggled with why this was happening. I was struggling with why would somebody say to me, I like it when you wear tight-fitting pants. You're the reason why I come to church. If I wasn't married, I, or if you weren't my pastor, and on and on and on. These comments are so arresting and disturbing that the only conclusion that I could log logically come to is that I was doing something wrong, that maybe my clothes really were too tight-fitting, or maybe I should wear skirts to my ankles instead, or stop wearing skirts and dresses altogether, wear like business jackets and bigger pants. Yes, be more businessy. But then a different logic that I ascribe to would kick in, Things like, well, Melissa, you are a woman. You like wearing skirts and dresses. You do not have enough money to go out and buy a whole new wardrobe. You do know how to dress tastefully and professionally, and you do that. But most importantly, I should not have to hide the parts of myself that distinguish me as a woman. A female body standing up here doing the work of being a pastor signals to our youngest members that they, too, can be up here if they want, and they too can support the women that are up here. And so, in the years that followed, I decided to embrace more dressing the way that I normally dress, with my normal sense of style and femininity, but the comments got worse. And as that happened, I felt that maybe it was too late to bring Dee into what was happening. Now, I don't think that this is a problem solely because of clothing or appearance, but I also think that there's a big part of this that, is be that I am not married. So I don't have a man by my side to defend or look out for me or sort of validate to others that I get to be here. Though I will say that my dad intervened once in a very helpful way, so go dad for being here. Also, I will say that, <laughs> yes, um, that not being married, having this, as you've experienced, boundless sense of energy that I have, and that my position involves me working with young adults, I think makes me come off like I'm younger than I actually am. And so I think that um, people see me as a more available single woman here. Even so, 
we know that there are appropriate ways to show interest and that it should be obvious that making inappropriate comments to someone in authority, a leader here, one of your pastors, is just not acceptable. And that is why watching that documentary changed me, because it gave me finally the reason why this has been happening. Because sexism, of course, exists here too. And while I know that it is a strange and new experience for many of us to have a woman in a higher position of leadership at church, I never had that to look at. What has been happening here is something beyond ideological differences or beyond discomfort. We titled this series, In the World, Not of It, because we wanted to convey that while there are things that take place in the world that, de that we deplore and that we don't want to associate with, those things of the world are here too within our walls. And it takes great intentionality to name them, to confront them, and to subvert those things. When something happened that was pretty egregious and it necessitated me involving D, I found a tremendous ally in D. In fact, it became the catalyst for this series. His reaction, his emotions, and his decisive action was heartening for me. And then we took it to the board, and the board cried and told me they would hold this with me. And now we're telling you, we know that I'm not the only one in this place who experiences comments like this. Those who don't know what to say, we come alongside women that have heard these things. We come alongside you if you have heard them said to a woman. We want to be a community that says a clear no to unequal and minimizing treatment of ourselves or of other people. That is the way of Christ. That is the radical, system-disturbing, yes, uncomfortable, but always honest way of Christ. I'm sure that if confronted, those who have made such statements could offer a defense, could offer a way of explaining it away, or some type of justification. But that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Whenever a person created in the image of God is treated in a sexualized, unwanted way, objectified, or spoken of in subhuman terms, in that moment, God's kingdom has been attacked. And God's creation has been assaulted. It doesn't matter if a statement was intended as a compliment. What is important is that the other person feels invaded, disrespected, and unsafe. It is bad enough that it happens in the marketplace or in our workplaces, but how terrible when the culture has invaded this community of faith that someone would feel so minimized or unsafe in this place. So... I am certainly more than willing to confront individuals if that's necessary, whose comments are inappropriate or out of place. But I'll be honest, I'm much more interested this morning in, in raising up a crowd of people, a crowd of people willing to take a stand when they need to take a stand, to be defenders of the marginalized, to be champions of those with no voice, to be allies of those who feel isolated or alone. For those who have the courage to listen to God's Spirit and guidance, to say no when no needs to be said, Jesus empowers us with the freedom to change. But in order to change, we have to be willing to come face to face, face to face with our weaknesses, our sinfulness, our biases, 
our prejudices, our cultural inbreeding, our racism, our arrogance, our sexism. Jesus' words to the disciples really are the same words to us this morning. Do you still not understand? The disciples were worried that they had not brought enough loaves of bread for the different groups of people they would be seen on the other side of the lake. One type of loaf for the Jews and different loaf for all of the others. Jesus is trying to get them to understand there is but one loaf. And all are, all are invited to come to the same table, partake of the same bread in the same community. Absolutely all are loved by God. And to be treated with the dignity and respect and kindness appropriate for a child of the king. And you are a child of the king. And we are invited to this table, a table of radical grace and love. So I invite you to join in prayer as Milton comes and leads us both in prayer and in communion.